Hello, everyone. This is another impromptu, somewhat late-night edition of our occasional call-in get-togethers. And they become impromptu or they become the -the spur-of-the-moment choices for me to run with when, you know, the spirit calls and I feel like I have something relatively unique or novel to add, and the exact time that it's being done is of no matter, because other priorities reign supreme, such as sharing them with you on our intimate call-in forum here. Um, So I published a Substack article that is ostensibly tied to the Supreme Court ruling on Friday, where, of course, Roe versus Wade was overturned. But I didn't think that it would have been particularly fruitful for me to delve into the nitty-gritty of the jurisprudence or to pretend like I'm somebody who's been deeply engrossed in the case law surrounding abortion rights for the past 50 years or whatever. And so I took a of a, what I call a roundabout route to discussing at least a component of this story that maybe is somewhat underappreciated. And so in order to do that, I take a little bit of a, of a detour and you might want to read the article for yourself, but I touch back on the, um, <laughs> the media controversy that amusingly erupted this past month where Felicia Sommez, this journalist at the Washington Post, launched a uh, Twitter crusade against her colleagues, first of them being Dave Weigel, which is kind of this affable, non-offensive guy who many journalists in the industry are personally familiar with and personally know because he's sort of a uh, fixture at all kinds of political events, campaign rallies, conferences, and and so forth. So if you have covered a major political conference or convention or rally or event of some kind in the U.S. over the past 10-plus years, there's a very good chance you have personally encountered Weigel, as I have. And so the idea that all of a sudden he would be ruthlessly targeted by uh, this Felicia character seemed to change the tide somewhat against how much deference a person like Felicia Sanmez could expect to receive on account of her being a purported trauma victim or survivor. And I promise this will get back to Roe versus Wade eventually. (laughs) Now, I had first written about Felicia Sanmez about a year and a half ago, or maybe a little less, because it was clear to me that she was a pioneer in this emerging field of extremely elite, well-heeled journalists with an illustrious pedigree. She had gone to Harvard. She had gotten all the right you know, fellowships, prestigious spots at uh, foreign bureaus and whatever. This phenomenon of journalists who are that quote-unquote privileged using their 
victims, claimed victim status to obtain leverage within their workplaces and attain professional or social advancements. And Felicia Summers has been doing that to much great effect for quite some time, including when I was first writing about her because she basically had cited that status of hers to get the Washington Post to accommodate her and change editorial policy in her um, in her vision that she had demanded. And so the, the months went by after last spring and she then began to sue the Washington Post and claim that she had been discriminated against on account of her purported survivor status. That lawsuit then got dismissed with prejudice, and still she kept plugging away at the Washington Post, even though most of her journalistic output for a long time seemed to be just suing the Washington Post. But nonetheless, she persisted, and then this flare-up with uh, Weigel happened, and although it is the case that she still did maintain the ability to wield her leverage such that once she demanded that Weigel should be suspended or otherwise disciplined because Weigel tweeted a very mildly amusing slash forgettable joke about bipolar or bisexual women, um, although she still did have enough cachet at that time to get her desired remedy enacted and Weigel was disciplined, you did get to see very quickly within the media sphere a sort of change in sentiment where pretty, you know, almost right off the bat, a lot of people, her colleagues, other commentators who might have a year prior agreed that she was owed this deference on account of her being a survivor. Now we're kind of fed up with the whole concept and we're saying that it was ridiculous for her to have launched this broadside and doubly ridiculous as well for the Washington Post to have acceded to her demand and punished Weigel for such a trivial non-infraction. And so Sonnes kept up her tirades against other Washington Post employees and then was ultimately fired herself for just being too crazy for even the Washington Post to be able to tolerate anymore. And so I guess my working theory at that time and still now is that although, yeah, obviously this one individual can't be taken to represent an entirely kind of capacious trend, it still was something of a shift for her to be uh, face this backlash to her conduct because in the past couple of years, she had been insulated to that kind of backlash on account of her claiming this victim status or survivorship status. And that was very powerful for a very long time. And at least now it seems that that power has been whittled away somewhat. So it's a subtle shift, but nonetheless a significant one in these kind of insular worlds of media dynamics. And so that got me to thinking about the uh, first time that Dave Weigel was, (laughs) first time Weigel found himself in hot water at the Washington Post, because it also kind of is suggestive of certain shifts to keep in mind as we're talking about the fallout from this Roe versus Wade decision. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, and why should you be, unless you're kind of a incorrigible obsessive about this stuff, which I guess I am, 
um, Weigel worked for the Washington Post in 2010. He was hired in 2010 as part of this wave of hires by the Washington Post of younger journalists who were seen as bloggers. And so this was a demonstration of the Washington Post getting with the times and incorporating this new journalistic sensibility around quote-unquote blogging into their kind of institutional structure. And uh, Weigel was one of them because he had been, I guess you would call it a blogger of some kind uh, for Reason Magazine and some other publications. I didn't really just uh, what is meant by the word blogging. It's just that he did journalism in a, kind of, in a style that's reminiscent of pretty much everybody who came of age um, on the internet. Um, and so, you know, Weigel was cut to, hired to cover the you know conservative movement because he was ideologically ambiguous in his own personal beliefs and he had covered the kind of certain elements of the right at Reason and at other publications for, for a while. And then uh, one day, <laughs> uh, Weigel uh, tweeted out something. And this was back in 2010. So this might have been like the prehistoric days of, of Twitter uh, before most many people were even on it or aware of it. And he said, uh, quote, this is May 1st, 2010. I can empathize with everyone I cover except for the anti-gay marriage bigots. In 20 years, no one will admit they were part of that. Now, that caused enough of an uproar back in 2010 that Weigel had to immediately, immediately apologize. And clearly he had crossed the line, at least in terms of the institutional standards of the Washington Post. And But the problems continued for Weigel because shortly after, uh, he had some emails of his leaked from a private listserv. Uh, it was called a journal list. It was run by Ezra Klein. It was basically compo- composed of liberal-leaning or left uh, journalists and academics and think tank types. And here are some of the emails from Weigel that were then published by the, the Daily Caller and then created a second uproar. Here's what the Daily Caller wrote back then. This is 2010. Weigel describes conservatives as using media to, quote, violently, angrily divide America. According to Weigel, their motives include, quote, racism and, quote, protecting white privilege. And for some top conservatives in in D.C., a nihilistic thirst for power. Weigel wrote that the problem with mainstream media is, quote, this need to give equal time, equal slash extra time to real American views, no matter how effing moronic, which, which just so happen to be the views of the conglomerates that run the media and or buy of ads. So the most incendiary thing there that Weigel was caught saying, per the standards of 2010, probably was that conservatives are, quote, violent, uh, trying to violently or angrily divide America and that they're driven by racism or white privilege. And so the reason I resurrected this sort of obscure and otherwise irrelevant internet slash journalism history is because just think of what the standards would be today for what a journalist would have to worry about in order to get themselves in trouble at a major publication, right? Do you think that 
saying that conservatives or people on the right are prone to, quote, racism or that they are motivated by defending, quote, right, white privilege. Do you think that would get somebody in Weigel's position today in serious trouble? I mean, please. If anything, journalists would run the rigor, bigger risk of getting in trouble if they denied that conservatives or the right were motivated by racism slash white privilege, right? Or if they weren't vehement enough in their affirmation that racism or white privilege were problems. So just think of how that dynamic has shifted over the years, right? Um, Back then, while, for example, was seen as having put himself in an untenable position at the Washington Post because he got caught saying about Sarah Palin that she had been guilty of, quote, lies. And those lies had to do with issues that you can probably barely recall at the time, right now, but were sailing at the time, like around, you know, do death panels, um, are death panels contained in the Obamacare legislation because Palin would say stuff like that. And Weigel denounced it as a lie, and that was another big scandalous revelation that came out from his private emails and made his job at the Washington Post no longer tenable. Now, do you think today if somebody, (laughs) some journalist at some publication said that Donald Trump had lied or expressed vague contempt for Donald Trump. Do you think that would get them into trouble at their publication? Do you think that would mean that their job was at stake? I mean, no. The funny thing is, the ironic thing is that today, again, the bigger risk would be if they did not affirm as vigorous, vigorously enough that Trump was guilty of lies or that Trump was worthy of contempt. So I guess the point is that back in 2010 – if you bring your mind back to that era, if you were around, at the Washington Post, there was at least a pretension that people who have readers who have um, right-wing cultural views ought not to have their sensibilities offended too egregiously because if their sensibilities were offended, that could jump compromise the journalistic integrity of the newspaper and make people doubt the trustworthiness of the Washington Post's reporting, whereas today it's just been a, just a total shift, and shift is too mild a word, in the dominant sensibility or ethos of the media, where I, I really do think, I'm not even exaggerating for effect here, that Simply saying what Weigel said back in 2010 about conservative media figures would only threaten your job if you were not as passionate, not passionate enough in expressing those sentiments. Um, And the real risk today is, of course, not merely that you're overly mean to conservatives within these media organizations, but that... You're not mean enough. You're not derogatory enough. That would be the bigger risk, I would wager. And so how does this all circle back to Roe versus Wade? Well, I admit it's in a very roundabout fashion. 
But, you know, given these sort of shifts that have taken place within media culture over the years, and given the subtlety of some of those shifts that aren't really picked up on a lot of people who don't have a trained enough eye, what will be the prevailing ethos about, for example, people who celebrate the Supreme Court decision and furthermore celebrate laws that have been enacted in certain states like Missouri or Louisiana where abortion is now almost entirely prohibited or entirely prohibited, really. I mean, in Oklahoma, it's pretty much straight up prohibited, although I think there are still some very stringent uh, life of the mother exceptions. But other than that, it's prohibited. So for all practical purposes, it's just banned. And so I had to, I, I started wondering, are people who have that view, meaning that it's good for Oklahoma to pass a law virtually entirely prohibiting abortion, are they going to be extended the same deference today in 2022 as the anti-gay marriage opponents were um, extended in 2010 such that Weigel committing the transgression by the likes of the Washington Post uh, of calling them bigots and being too egregious in his rhetoric about them, um, are journalists today of Weigel's ilk or if in similar in similar situations um, it, under similar institutional constraints? Are they going to have to also withhold? their consternation toward people who are supportive of these new anti-abortion regimes? Um, Or are all bets really off and that kind of lingering ideal of not excessively antagonizing conservatives back in 2010, has that been just totally obliterated? Because it's definitely been obliterated with regard to just like Trump Trump supporters, um, the idea that many the conservatives now are just not a rival political tendency that has to be begrudgingly accommodated, which I think probably was the dominant sensibility back in 2010, but are rather you know insurrectionists, abetting insurrection slash domestic terrorism, um, and therefore on the path of destroying democracy. Um, so that's a just an all-purpose categorization of conservatives, and I think informs much of the coverage of them now and informs why it is that that extension of deference that was the case in 2010 is no longer there. Um, But I have to then also allow for the possibility that maybe abortion is a particularly, is a a unique issue in that, you know, somebody who supports a total abortion ban in Oklahoma is not automatically going to be lumped into the same all-encompassing category as the insurrectionists and the MAGA terrorists. Are distinctions going to be drawn there in terms of how tolerable they're perceived to be by the prevailing media ethos? I don't know. I think it's possible. I mean, I go back and forth with this sort of unchartered territory in terms of, you know, uh, Rover Swade had been the linchpin of the abortion debate for almost 50 years and now it's been removed. So it's hard to really predict how that's going to 
shake out. But I, I do kind of wonder whether um, supporting abortion bans is going to be regarded as a legitimate belief or at least legitimate enough within the confines of the media world that the people who hold that view ought not to have their sensibilities kind of flagrantly violated. Um, or could there have it? Couldn't, or will the media just kind of keep barreling ahead with the ethos that they generally adopted under Trump and so they don't care if the sensibilities of those pro-abortion prohibition uh, laws uh, are are violated. Um, hard to say, really. Um, I think, insofar as uh, Trump is connected to any of these abortion laws, right, or insofar as Trump can be assigned culpability for these abortion laws, then that's going to be much easier. Make it much easier for the media to say, "Look, no, we're we're keeping our whole." a philosophy of not according any deference whatsoever to these people because maybe they're just saying that they want to outlaw abortion, but really they're part of this wider right-wing terror program uh, associated with Trump um, that is so beyond the pale that it had caused us to abandon our prior standards. One of those prior standards being that, yeah, maybe back in 2010 – Maintaining the institutional integrity of the Washington Post required not just, uh, you know, crudely lashing out at social conservatives. But given that today social conservatives are part of this insurrectionist movement, not just a social conservative movement, that that makes that deference all the more untenable. Um, so that strikes me as plausible. But it also strikes me as plausible that, you know, maybe – there could be a recognition of, for example, advocacy of laws like have been adopted in Oklahoma, that it does represent at least sort of a good faith line of reasoning within American political life and is not like intrinsically connected to a desire to, quote unquote, destroy democracy or foment insurrection. And therefore, would maybe need to be accorded the same kind of deference that had been accorded to the gay marriage opponents back in 2010. And of course, abortion and LGBT issues are not the same. Um, and there can be a whole uh, variety of reasons why deference would be accorded to abo- abortion opponents, but not. Gay marriage opponents, and in fact, if you take the logic that Weigel <laughs> sort of invoked in his 2000 tweet, 2010 tweet that he had to apologize for and like started this process of getting him ousted from the, uh, the Washington Post for the first time, um, he says he can empathize with pretty much everyone he covers except gay marriage opponents. So apparently that meant he could empathize with abortion opponents at the time. So maybe the media does view like an anti-abortion position as more legitimate than they would view would have viewed an anti-gay marriage position. That's plausible. Um, I guess I just, just uh, in general, and maybe to conclude, this political fallout from the Supreme Court's decision, I think, can be, can be viewed as a, as a test 
for how viable this post-2016 ethos that the media adopted um, is going to be. Because, you know, is it going to be viable to associate like every right-wing or socially conservative victory within the American political system as so inherently dangerous and frightening that it has to be covered with the same kind of alarmism and, um, you know, take no prisoners shrieking mentality as anything pertaining to Trump is covered? Or can they kind of compartmentalize and look at abortion as a separate issue that doesn't necessarily have to be lumped into this whole category of, you know, right-wing insurrectionist terror. I'm not sure. Um, so if uh, anybody has a thought, happy to hear from you. Otherwise, I was going to just brief, briefly touch on another thought that I had post this Roe versus Wade decision that I was sort of curious if people here might have a take on. Now, I don't want to just do aimless um, punditry if I can um, – if I can avoid it, but it did occur to me, you know, and I'm, you know, journalistically over the years, I have gone to a number of um, conservative Christian political events. Uh, I've talked to enough people who are evangelicals of various stripes um, or belong to pretty fervent denominations of Christian belief uh, to to know that the again uh, the, <laughs> the fervency of those beliefs really, um, whereas I think a lot of people, including probably some elite Republicans, really don't have a whole lot of first hand exposure to those types of people, except maybe for you know I mean there are there's a sliver of you know uh, evangelicals or what have you who enter into maybe DC institutional conservatism, but in terms of the, the people who are on the ground. Um, the people who don't have access to D.C., uh, I think it's worth also talking to them if you can. And uh, over the course of doing that, I have had ex- expressed to me personally and bluntly on a number of occasions, and I've made the observation elsewhere, that um, there's a, at least a segment, a significant segment, I would say, of uh, – what you might roughly call conservative evangelicals, which I know is not a particularly precise term and can imply different denominational affiliations and theological views and what have you. But if you want to just, for simplicity's sake, identify a category of people as conservative evangelicals, within that category, there is a significant, I would say, portion of people who view Donald Trump as a uh, extremely re- uh, significant figure, not just for what he did politically, but because they view him as a as having fulfilled a certain prophecy. Um, they the way it's usually put is that God chose Trump as an imperfect vessel, so you know Trump obviously is not this exemplar of Christian virtue throughout his entire life, and in fact has failed on that front on a personal level or characterological level. level. Um, But then 2016 presidential election rolls around, and one thing leads to another, and God has chosen Trump as his imperfect vessel to do God's will. And part of that will that God was that uh, Trump was chosen to do is to overturn Roe versus Wade. It's a fifty-year 
uh, goal of organized conservative Christian movements that basically impelled conservative Christianity into the formidable political force that it later became. Um, you know, go back to the moral majority and their, you know, Jerry Falwell and whatever. I mean, all that sprung up largely impelled by the what the it dawning on conservative Christians that they had to undertake a certain kind of political organizing in order to um, respond to the Roe versus Wade decision and um, work toward removing the uh, court's permission of abortion as, as allowable. Um, and so Trump, within certain segments of the, the Republican Party that are very active um, and vote and organize within Republican primaries, um, Trump is viewed as having fulfilled this prophecy. Um, and I'm not even trying to be, I, I, I mentioned this on Twitter and I wanted to just clarify that I'm, I wasn't even trying to be glib when I'm describing it in these terms. I think I'm just trying to straightforwardly and non-judgmentally describe what I think is a real and existing phenomenon. Um, and so you know, given that Trump now has this just historically exalted status amongst Christian conservatives because he can conclusively and definitively claim correctly that he delivered on what had been their 50-year animating goal of working within the political system such that Roe versus Wade could eventually be overturned. Uh, I just don't see this. I don't see how Trump's um, the, the allegiance that Trump commands amongst that demographic can be seriously eroded should he run again for president, which all signs point to him doing so. I mean, he's doing everything that you could possibly think he would do to prepare for another presidential run. Um, you know, he's not even really bashful about saying that he's going to run. He When he hints that he's running, it's like a, it's hardly even a hint. It's basically just an expression of intent to run. Um, and so, you know, a lot of con elite conservatives, and I use the term elite in an approximate way, but people, conservatives who are in, in and around the media, maybe the advocacy world, et cetera, I mean, you definitely get the sense that a lot of them would not prefer Trump to run again and want him to pass the mantle, you know, to most likely a DeSantis. Um, but, you know, if he does run again, and it's... I think increasingly certain that he will. I mean, it could be wrong, but everything now points to him doing so. I just don't see how any, but any other Republican, DeSantis or not, could really challenge him from the standpoint of competing for the votes of conservative evangelicals uh, who now view Trump as having delivered this prophecy. I mean, and even for those portions of conservative evangelicals who don't view Trump as having really delivered a prophecy in this kind of biblical sense. Still, just having um, delivered on this goal of re, uh, delivering uh, overturning Roe versus Wade is so seismic that 
I have doubts as to whether anybody else in the Republican Party could seriously uh, compete. Um, anyway, uh, that'll do it now. I just want to do a quick chat with you all, um, unless anybody has, has a brief thought. Uh, take a look at that Substack post that I just put out, and uh, we'll uh, reconvene soon. And oh, by the way, I'm right now in Spain, believe it or not, because I got a credential to go to the NATO summit this week. So we'll uh, have to see how that pans out. All right, bye bye.